Hello, this is Jim Lang of the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks. And I'm here today in the Vanguard studio with Mr. John C. Bogle. Mr. Bogle was the founder and now retired CEO of the Vanguard Group, the world's largest mutual fund company with $1.7 trillion under management. Mr. Bogle formed the first index fund available to individual investors, now known as the Vanguard S&P 500. In talking about the Vanguard S&P 500, Paul Samuelson said, I recognize this Bogle invention along with the invention of the wheel, the alphabet, and the Gutenberg printing. Over the course of his 60-year career, Mr. Bogle has literally changed the face of investing. Fortune magazine ranked Mr. Bogle one of the four investment industry giants of of the 20th century. Mr. Bogle has written 10 books from the 1993 bestseller Bogle on Mutual Funds to this year's The Clash of the Cultures, Investment versus Speculation. Thank you for agreeing to this interview. Many of your previous books strike me as books that were really more of a how-to book. This book is takes a much different perspective, a broader perspective, frankly controversial. Um, why tell this story now at, at this point in your career? Well, to begin with, I have a love affair with history. And there are many things in the new book that if I don't write them down and put them between a couple of covers, they will be gone. They will not be part of history. So students of the financial markets, students of financial history, will, I think, be greatly enriched by the personal uh, experiences I've had going back to 1951, uh, all during my early career with Wellington Fund, a merger that I did that went wrong, a big mistake of my life, the creation of Vanguard, uh, and many of the issues that we face today in the financial sector, including a disgraceful lack of much interest in being active voters among mutual funds. They're passive. They don't do anything to fix corporation uh, governance itself. So it's history. It's a peek at the past a peek at the present, and uh, a little investment advice at the end, just a teaser. Well, you you, you talk about the difference between investment and speculation, and which is obviously the theme of the book. So maybe I thought that I could just ask you directly, what do you see the difference of investment and speculation, and what are some of the problems when we get away from investment and we go towards speculation? Well, of course, there are a thousand uh, definitions (laughs) of investment and probably 2,000 definitions of speculation. But the fundamental building block of that difference is investing is about owning corporations, businesses that actually exist, focusing on their intrinsic value, their ability to grow over the years through earnings, through paying out dividends, reinvesting the rest in the business, and holding corporations for the long run. That's where wealth is generated. It is not generated in the stock market. So when you have, let's call it, focusing on intrinsic long-term value as the definition of investment, speculation is betting on price. And price is ephemeral. Price is the price of a stock. Uh, It's anything but eternal. Uh, You're betting on price. You buy and sell with great frequency. While investing is a long-term process, speculation is a short-term process. Sometimes, it seems, Jim, getting shorter every single day. We now have some high-frequency traders out there who trade stocks every 15 seconds, but it may even be an average of 15 seconds. It may be trading in nanoseconds. Bam, bam, bam. That's speculation. It's not investing. And how would you see the difference in the culture? Because there's obviously a completely different way of thinking between speculation and investment. Um, How do you... uh, think the culture has changed, or what would you like to see the culture be more like? Well, investing is about long-term wealth creation. Uh, speculation is a culture of trading with the other person, which we are another investor, uh, another institution. And we know, we know, Jim, that that is a loser's game. It has to be a loser's game, because if you bet A is going to go up, let's say Apple, and some, you're, you're selling it to someone who believes it's going to go down, Uh, one of you are going to be right, one wrong. So the central fact of that trade is the man in the middle. 
the croupier, the broker, the money manager are all in the middle, and so it's not an even bet. It's a 50-50 it's bet until the cost of the croupiers is taken out. If, you, if it sounds like I'm talking about Las Vegas, I am. Uh, you know, you, we gamble back and forth trying to get other people's money, but the house always wins. If it sounds like I'm talking about the racetrack, I am. If it, it sounds like I'm talking about the state lottery, the worst, biggest, greediest croupier of them all, where <laughs> I take in, let's say, $100 million and maybe pay out to the winner $50 million, and the rest goes into the coffers of the state. Uh, so it, it, it obviously is totally unproductive. We all think that we are on the winning side, but since there are two people on every side, this is what people don't get about investing. Uh, it doesn't create value. It subtracts value, where speculation does, and investing adds value. You've always been a champion of the everyday investor and made a case for fairness, transparency, and fiduciary duty, which is a continuing theme of yours. I read your book as almost an a indictment of some of the culture of speculation and specific, specifically corporate mutual fund management, and to some extent, Wall Street itself. Is, is that a fair reading or is that a fair characterization of some of your thinking right now? I think you understate my concerns. <laughs> uh, Wall Street is a mess. Our can I say it any more boldly? <laughs> Our financial system is a mess because it's all based on trading, heavily based on trading and speculation and not nearly heavily enough based on investment. Let me just give you an interesting example. Maybe a little bit unfair, but that's okay. Uh, the, the, the basic function, which everybody in Wall Street knows, which the regulators know, which people that love the system know and people that hate the system know, is the basic function, the classic function of our financial sector, is direct to direct new capital to its highest and best and most profitable uses. New companies, existing companies with new ideas, who needs the capital will get it to the people that really need it the most and can do the most with it. So how much of that happens every year? Well, the answer to that is around $250 billion is directed into new initial public offerings and secondary public offerings of corporate stock, $250 billion. So that's the investment part of our system. How big is the speculative part? We trade, believe it or not, Jim, we trade $33 trillion with one another all year, gambling back and forth every gamble creating a winner and a loser, and then that little croupier in the middle whose little tiny bit of money turns out to be billions. And uh, so if you think about it that way, 250 billion versus 33 trillion, it's fair to say on that basis, and this is you know, many ways of measuring this, I admit, but on that basis it means that 99.2% of our financial situation, uh, system is dedicated to speculation and eight-tenths of one percent is dedicated to investment. Do the math. That's the number. You, you also talk about the conflict of interest, which is a recurring theme of yours between corporate and mutual fund management and people who are supposed to have a fiduciary duty towards shareholders. Um, could you ex expand on that idea of fiduciary and conflict of interest and why you think our system is to some extent, or maybe to a large extent, broken partly just because of that conflict of interest? Yeah, well, uh, to begin with, uh, you have to think of this as, as what the economists would call an agency problem. Are the agents representing their principles? Uh, in this case, for the first time in human history, we have two sets of agents facing each other. On the one hand, we've got corporations and their agents are their management, the principles of the shareholders. And there's a great temptation for the managers, the chief executives, and so on, to run the company for their benefit, short-term benefit often, stock options, compensation, bigger to get more money, we do mergers a lot, and uh, so they're the agents, and the issue that's raised over there is they really aren't representing their principles, the, the shareholders of the corporations. Over here, we have another set of agents, and these agents actually control 
about 70% of all the stock in America. They are our financial institutions. And when you think about it this way, and when I came into this business in 1951, uh, around these in financial institutions investing money for others, uh, controlled about 8% of all shares of stock in America. Today they control 70%. These agents, these large institutional money managers for pension funds and mutual funds, and I should say more than parenthetically, both all firms are in both businesses, you can't really separate them anymore, are representing too much themselves and not enough the shareholders who have given them money or the pension beneficiaries who they owe a duty to to create a retirement fund. They're looking after their own interests. They're charging high fees. Uh, they don't want to get into corporate governance. The absenteeism uh, from, of uh, corporate owners if from corporate governance issues, how the corporations are being run, is just striking and in the long run totally counterproductive because someone has to look out to make sure that these corporations themselves, the big industrial companies of the land, uh, are being operated in the interest of their shareholders. And here we have the agents representing all these shareholders, only 66% more or less of the stock of every single corporation, have the absolute power to change the system, and they do almost nothing, zero. They sit back and endorse management proposals, endorse mergers, endorse compensation, and pay little attention to the interest of the shareholders behind that. Well, I guess corporate management isn't the only people that you indict, uh, specifically Chapter 2, the Double Agency Society and Happy Conspiracy. You name 10, you call them gatekeepers. Mm -hmm. And they include Congress, the Judiciary, the SEC, the Federal Reserve Board, the rating agencies, the financial press, security analysts, corporate directors who we've been talking about, and institutional stockholders who, in your own words, have played in abetting the new culture of speculation, particularly in the period of the great crash of 2008 to 2009 and its aftermath. Is, is that a fair indictment of so many well-respected institutions? Well, it's certainly a broad indictment. <laughs> <laughs> I, I might have left somebody out, but I'm not sure who, who that would have been. And, and, and you can pick anybody who, who you like. But well, take, take a good example is uh, the security analysts of the mutual funds. Uh, they should be interested if the management of a corporation that they follow, research for, uh, is failing. They should be taking an initiative to get that management changed, uh, to vote either to change it by throwing out the board, the directors, whatever it might be. And they can do that. They have the power to do that. It may be awkward and cumbersome, but they have the power. And they don't do anything. They seem to be much more interested, these, these security analysts, in the price of the stock. That is to say, again, the speculative aspect of it. They want the company to tell, give them earnings guidance. It makes the analysts good, look good when a company says, I'm going to earn 87 cents this year, and they earn 88, something like that. Uh, they, they want that guidance to be realized. And there's no earnings guidance, almost, this is a slight overstatement, that can't be a target that can't be reached. Because if you get halfway through the year, or three quarters of the way through the year, you start playing financial engineering games and you write off things faster or more slowly, depending on you know, which way you want the earnings to go. Uh, you do a lot in the supply chain. You can do all kinds. You do a merger. That's the greatest muddier of numbers in, in, that, that I know of. Uh, and uh, so you really basically cannot trust, in a very fundamental sense, the earnings estimates produced by these corporations. And that's why I in, indict the accountants. Where the heck are they? And let me give you one example of this. Uh, these corporations, all in their annual report, uh, they're asked, they have to report on what earnings they expect from the pension plans that they oversee for their employees. And virtually unanimously, they report 8%. That's kind of what a historical return might have been. But they ignore the fact that history is meaningless. History is yesterday. What's important in projecting for the next 10 years or so what the pension plan is going to earn. Uh, we have some knowns. The, the intermediate-term government bond yields less than 
Don't forget, we've got to get to 8% here. And a reasonable return for stocks might be 7 So you got a 4.5% return in a 50-50 portfolio. Then you take out the cost of investing. One of the fascinating sub-facts, fascinating to me, is that uh, all these projections are based on stock market returns without recognizing the obvious. We don't get the stock market returns. We get the stock market returns less cost, and they totally ignore cost. I mean, it's, you know, it's a vested interest. It's shocking. But there is, I, I think I can say unequivocally, you can check me out in 10 years, that there is not a Chinaman's chance, and well, I better not say that. That's very <laughs> troublesome. There is not a prayer. Uh, I hope that's okay. There's not a prayer. I think it's fair to say there's not a prayer that these companies are going to earn that 8%. Their shortfall is going to be great. They're going to have to put up a lot more funding to the pension plan. Uh, it's a very troubled part of American business. And I guess what happens when you understate the pension liability is that you are, in effect, overstating assets, understating liabilities that would cause a, a company to be valued higher than it should. That's the trick. And, uh, you know, you can, and corporations have actually done this. If you've got a little earnings shortfall, you say, you know what? I think I can get, I, I think it's reasonable to assume that my pension plan is going to earn not 7%, but 8%. And all of a sudden you've made a half a billion dollars or something. And I guess it's just not corporations. I, th I think we're seeing that at the uh, local, state, and federal government. And the, 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 the federal government, for reasons I'll come to in a second, uh, is not that much of a problem. Uh, but certainly the state and local governments are. They're using the same 8%, 8% uh, before the cost of investing, before thinking about current interest rates. I mean, today's interest rate on a bond has you know, basically a 90%, 90% plus probability of being the actual return that bond will deliver you over the next 10 years. Not very surprising, because all the return on a bond comes from interest. And the interest doesn't grow. You've got a little contract there to get, get your coupon every uh, twice a year for the next 10 years. And the bond will then be, if you're lucky, retired at, at par. So there's no extra long-term difference. All you have to do is know the yield. So we know what the bond portfolio is going to earn. We know. And they seem to ignore all that. So it's a very, very uh, games-playing, manufacture-the-numbers kind of game that the auditors, which is where we started here, ought to say, whoa. Now, they may say, we don't have any responsibility for that. What are they there for? What are they there for? Uh, you know, if, if it's true that they don't have any responsibility, they better take some responsibility because the corporate managements are gaming this number. Well, they are, they are attesting to the financial statement. If a financial statement isn't accurate, then they're not doing their job. Well, of course, it's, I, I suppose you could say, what does this guy Bogle know? I think the returns <laughs> in the next 10 years are going to be 10%. Uh, so uh, it's not a question. It's a little, little bit of an, equiv uh, an equivocal question. Okay. And, and we could probably, you could probably spend an hour on each one of those, including, including Congress. Um, but may, maybe we should move on. Do you think that some of the problems that you had mentioned earlier in terms of speculation versus investment were really the cause of the financial havoc that we had in 2008 and 2009, or at least partly responsible for some of the problems that we've had? Well, I wouldn't put speculation at the heart of that. Of course, there's speculation, because when someone sells you one of these collateralized debt obligations, you're speculating that it has good, that the rating agencies or some independent analysis uh, says these things are money good. Uh, the basic part of that was a terrible fraud perpetuated by mortgage companies countrywide, Washington Mutual, who were putting away, you know, the system works like this. Uh, you've got salesmen out there, and their job is to sell money. Okay, So they find somebody that makes 20000 a year. They get them to take on a $200,000 mortgage. They actually give them a $300,000 mortgage, so he spends a hundred before he buys the 200 house. This has been known to happen. And why don't they care? Because they sell the mortgage to a bank. Why doesn't the bank care? Because, because they sell it to a collateralized <laughs> debt offering, uh, underwriting. 
And so they're just, it's, it, we, we sever in that system the essential link uh, between borrower and lender. If there's no connection between the, the borrower and the lender, the lender's going to lend anything. He doesn't care about the borrower. He's going to get rid of the instrument uh, and give it to somebody else. And the rating agencies have a huge onus on them uh, for what they did in this area. You know, it, it was well known that you could kind of buy ratings. I believe these companies were paid to give a AAA rating to a collateralized debt obligation. And as far as I know, believe this or not, there were no non-AAAs because you couldn't sell one that wasn't AAA. So the underwriter would work with the rating agencies and say, what do we need to do to make this a AAA? They all come at AAA, and of course we now know that some of the ones that came out were single Zs <laughs> <laughs> at best. Well, I, uh, included in your list of um, institutions that you indict, you do include Congress. Do you think Congress has a role in trying to change some of these habits of behavior? Well, poor Congress. Uh, <laughs> you know, they're a bunch of nice people, uh, and uh, the, the complexities of the financial system are, in fact, rather overwhelming. So they listen to in industry lobbyists and get directed in that direction. Unless you get a real crisis, as we had in 2008, 2008, 2009. And then and they're following the ancient rules, sometimes a good one, mostly a bad one. Don't just stand there, do something. So they passed the Dodd-Frank Act. And it's still gotten nowhere three years later, I guess, and, uh, or almost nowhere. Uh, sensible things like what we call the Volcker Rule, which is designed to keep banks largely out of dealing as underwriters for their own accounts. Uh, and uh, they're working on 193 pages of regulation to make that happen. Obviously, what would have happened in a wise world and without the pressures from these institutions themselves, is we would have gone back to what is known as the Glass-Steagall Act, an act that was passed by Congress after the debacle of the Great Depression, passed by Congress in, I think, 1934, which said you can be a commercial banker and lend money, or you can be an investment banker and take all the risks of underwriting. Never the twain shall meet. And uh, so they've, we abandoned that in 1999, and instead of putting it back, just saying, okay, we made a mistake, they have this convoluted law intended to, to accomplish the same thing. I think Paul Volcker did a great job in getting that Volcker Amendment in there, but it hasn't been done, nothing's been done about it yet. So, and then you get the lobbying pressures are terrible. The, the banks and their lobbyists fight every regulation with an army of lawyers and look at every comma, and here the regulators are completely outmanned and outgunned. So what we're going to get out of Dodd-Frank, I think, finally, is very, very little. And you would just prefer going back to... No, I'd prefer naming Bogle the czar. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, I'll, I'll tell you what. Let's, let's name you the czar. What, what would you do right now to fix actually some of the problems that we've talked about in terms of agency, in terms of protecting the public, in terms of conflict of interest? Well, first of all, essentially, I would pass a federal uh, statute demanding fiduciary duty by money managers, and, and particularly institutional money managers who are managing money that belongs to others. And that fiduciary duty would have something to do with focusing on prudent long-term investing. It would certainly focus on reasonable cost to the, uh, uh, the people that have given you their money to invest. It would certainly focus on low turnover instead of high turnover. Some of these things may be difficult to write. Uh, it would eliminate conflicts of interest in the business, which is another way of saying that we should no longer tolerate conflicts of interest in the money management business, and they are profound. If you look at the mutual fund business and many of the institutions, uh, around 40 of them have public stockholders, of which around 36 are owned by financial conglomerates, great big international uh, banking firms. And the conflict there is these firms come in and buy a mutual fund management company, and they buy it to earn a higher return on their, that is to say, the conglomerate's capital, 
and they should be investing to earn a higher return on the mutual fund investors' capital. But when you serve two masters, which I think it was Matthew who warned us against, no man can serve two masters, they serve the one that's paying, and that is the management company, to which I concede they have fiduciary duty to their own shareholders. But they also have a fiduciary duty to those mutual fund shareholders. That conflict, my judgment, is intolerable. It ought to say, we just ought to demand a mandatory internalization of the mutual fund industry or spin-off. And would that conflict of interest also apply to even people at the retail level? For example, not necessarily mutual fund managers, but actually money managers where Mr. John Peak Public comes and says, I'm interested in investing my money. And right now we have a system where there are fiduciary advisors, but quite a few so-called advisors are actually not working in behalf of the client. And is that something that would that the, the John Bogle czar would also try to eliminate? Yeah, I'm actually working on a, on a group for the, what, what we'll call registered investment advisors. These are people with individual clients directly that require a fiduciary duty, clear fiduciary duty standard for them. And we're struggling with it a lot because they want to, there's a group that wants to include stockbrokers as having a fiduciary duty to their clients, which I'm afraid is impossible. You know, the stockbroker, how can he be a fiduciary if his boss calls up and says, uh, there's a new underwriting of X corporation, and uh, we have taken 10,000 shares or 100,000 shares, and each of you guys in the room have to sell 1,000 shares. You quit, you're out. The kids don't eat. It's a transaction business. So it's going to be very, very difficult to accomplish the total fiduciary duty. So I think it's going to have to finally be accomplished. I'm not sure about this. It has to finally be accomplished by fiduciary, uh, by uh, a, a definition, clear definition of the, the distinction that in effect says, I tell you, my brokerage client, I am not your fiduciary. And uh, that's going to be tough for people to swallow. On the institutional side, interestingly enough, we already have a fiduciary standard in the 1940 Act, the Investment Company Act of 1940, our governing statute. And it is said, and it's said since 1940, that mutual funds must be organized, operated, and managed in the interest of their shareholders rather than in the interest of their officers, directors, investment managers, and marketers. That is not being observed. Unfortunately, in the Act, it's like a, a principle in the policy section right at the beginning, and they never implement it. So we actually have the statute, if you want to argue it that way, and I would. Let's just use it. Let's just use it. Let's apply it. So if we're going back to this fiduciary standard that you want, and you think it's going to be hard to enforce it on stockbrokers who have a, a different duty of care and a different master, if you will, mm -hmm. do you think disclosure of whether you are a fiduciary to your client or to someone else would be at least part of the solution. There has to be disclosure. It has to be very sharp, very firm, very terse, uh, and quite understandable at first blush. The, the investor has a right to know that. And when you say disclosure, are we not only talking about fiduciary care, but would also be appropriate for full disclosure of fees? Because I, I know I talk to a lot of people that have various investments and they don't understand how the person who has sold or worked with them gets paid. And I suspect that they are paying much higher fees and costs than they know. Would disclosure there be important? Well, we certainly need disclosure, very, very clear disclosure of fees, and whether they're paid as a percentage of assets, whether they're paid based on cost, like a professional fee per hourly or whatever it might be in terms of services rendered. And we need that disclosure. We also need the advisor to disclose to the client whether he gets a lot of other revenue sources, for example. Is he also making commissions when he sells that client a mutual fund? Does he take those commissions as well as his advisory fee? Uh, and how much life insurance commissions are to him? All those kind of things must be disclosed, and they're very rife in the business. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned uh, disclosure because there's a guy who I've actually had on my radio show named uh, Blaine, Blaine Aiken or Atkin, and he is all for enforcing a fiduciary standard. 
And in preparing for today's uh, talk, I wanted to get an exact quote from him. I looked him up on Google, and what came up, there was a video, and it was a, what preceded it was a commercial for a high-cost annuity, which I'm sure he would not have approved. So I was thinking that that was a little bit ironic. Well, you know, if you understand, there's a great overlap, by the way, between the insurance business now and the mutual fund business, um, because we're selling in the in mutual fund people, registered advisors selling annuities, they're selling variable annuities, a lot of things. And the insurance company learned long ago, I don't mean to be uncharitable to them, they learned if you want to sell a poor product, pay the salesman a lot of money, which is another way of saying if you want to sell a poor product, raise the price of that product. That's what brings the salesman in, their commissions. So it's got to be clear to people. And, and then hopefully people will decline certain products if they understand what the fees and costs are. Well, yes, I think up to a point only, though, because just about everybody underrates the importance of cost. Looked at in a year, you're paying 1% or 2%. Ah, what's 1% or 2%? Looked at looked over at over an investment lifetime, you know if you if you if the more stock market for for crude example is going to earn nine percent, and you're paying two percent for that, and a lot of people are paying a lot more than that, you're going to actually net seven percent nine minus the two percent cost, okay, and if you look at a long term compound interest table, you will see that uh, the seven percent provides a return about 70% less than the 9% return. In other words, you, you, the investor, if you're paying 2% over a lifetime, are going to get 30% of the market's return, even though you put up 100% of the capital and took 100% of the risk. If investors would only look at the long term and understand that, the world would change. Well, I think the world, to some extent, has changed. Um, when you founded the Vanguard Group in 1974, I think the idea that passively managed funds could never compete with all the MBAs and all the people who were actively managed. In fact, as I understand it, the Vanguard Index was called Bogle's Folly. Um, in 1994, Jason Zweig did a study comparing the actively managed mutual funds with the S&P 500 and the index funds outperformed 97% of the time. In more recent studies, basically almost, every, not almost, every single index compared to the number of active managers, the active managers almost always, or to a large extent, did, did worse than the indexes, So, which obviously has a lot to do with fees. So do you somewhat feel vindicated that, that here you were, everybody was calling it Bogle's Folly, and it looks like history has proven you right? And maybe vindicated is a little strong word, but... Well, a humble fellow like me would never <laughs> say that. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is that history has proved that indexing works. Leave aside whether I'm right or wrong. And it's actually much, much stronger than the numbers that you see because we see the funds uh, underperforming the index, but often there are many, many statistical ways to look at this, infinite numbers, and everybody picks the ones they like. But the fact is, you're probably only talking in most of those comparisons, you say, who did best over the last 25 years? You need funds that have survived for 25 years. So all the failing funds that do badly and go out of business aren't even in the comparison. So that's one reason that the index superiority is underrated. Another reason is that when the fund tells you it's earned, let me say, an average return of 10% over the last blank years, uh, average annual return of 10%, uh, its investors almost never earn 10%. They put their money in after the fund has a good record. So the good record is built of all this great performance and then they put their money in and it goes away. So for, for many, many reasons, uh, what, what you need to understand about indexing is not as much the comparative statistics, which anybody can manipulate any way they want to make funds look better or worse. But what you need to know is the knowledge of the fundamental way the system works. Uh, you know, if the croupier's cost 
is 2%, to use that example again, and the market is 7, uh, market is 9, then everybody is going to get 7. Not may get 7, will get 7. In other words, the math is there. The index math is undeniable and eternal. I don't know how to make it any clearer. Well, perhaps the, your analogy in the book to the casino where the house is going to get a significant cut, so you can't, so the net to the gamblers... As a group. Is, as, as a group is negative, and the costs and effect added to the, um, some of the other problems that we were talking about before with agency makes it, it pretty rough for, for investors. Why, why would somebody invest with, with everything going against them, or is the answer to go into low-cost index investments? Well, the, the, the question, let me take the question first. Why in, in a system that is this much of a mess, financial system and mutual fund system, why invest at all? And the answer to that is, first, you, be, you better invest, invest you must, uh, because if you don't invest anything, I can tell you the exact amount of your retirement fund 25 years from now, it's going to be zero, right? <laughs> Not very complicated, so you have to invest, and the question is how. And the index fund is, in many respects, if not all respects, uh, the answer to what to do, because if you want to look at it in terms of croupiers and Las Vegas and all that, in the index fund, you go into the casino, you buy every stock in the casino, or all first largest 500 stocks in the casino, and then get the heck out and never darken its doors <laughs> again. Don't trade, don't do anything. And the, the, the rule for the investor should be, and we all think about, and in effect the financial system is built on this, and when something monstrous happens, big, noisy, uh, affects the market greatly on a very short-term basis, the answer is don't just stand there, do something. But the real answer is don't do something, just stand there. Whereas don't get captivated by the emotions of the moment. So indexing, because of its permanent, in effect, portfolio, managers don't change all the time as they do in the mutual fund industry every five years for the typical fund. Uh, so if you're going to invest for the lifetime, because of its cost, because of its tax efficiency, the index fund, which is not any magic, it's owning all the companies in America and holding them forever. And that is, and will be, and must be, the winning strategy. Well, speaking of, of winning strategies, in, as well as having some wonderful both historical information and, I think, providing a direction that you would like to see the investment world go, you also do give um, what I would, well, let's call it Bogle's 10 Simple Rules for Investment Success. Maybe if I could just give them to you one at a time, you could comment on each one. And the first one you just mentioned, uh, you alluded to a minute ago when you said, or the rule is, remember reversion to the mean. Could you expand on that one? That seems sure. to be one of your importance. Well, that's an eternal rule. <laughs> it's like the law of gravity. What goes up must go down. Uh, and in the financial markets, it really works. I have an example in the book. This, the point of all this, Jim, is don't buy funds on the basis of past performance because it's not going to continue, or it's only the extraordinary case when it's going to continue. So people tend to, as I mentioned earlier, put their money into these big winners, and uh, then down it goes. They pick the high because that's when the fund looks the best. So in, in that part of uh, my recommendations, recommendation one, uh, I've taken eight of the best-known and most successful mutual funds of the modern era and I've charted their return year after year, cumulatively, against the S&P, the Standard & Poor's 500 Index. And every fund looks the same, although all the time periods are different. The fund goes like this, and then it goes like this. This, 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 over and over and over again. And uh, you see this in the big winners of the age, and, and uh, they, they go away, their managers leave, Even the good managers might get fired, the bad, bad ones retire, there just doesn't seem to be any permanent uh, way to beat the stock market. Uh, it's all fads, fashions, uh, particular time periods. You know, when, for example, growth does better than value, you want to put your money in the growth fund, and then value does better than growth. Well, these 10 funds, which I list by name in the book, and two of them are Vanguard funds, in fairness. This book is a, is a 
an attempt to be really uh, honest no matter how painful and uh, you see that same pattern over and over again. So when you say I ought to buy this fund, I can tell you where you are on that line, right at the peak. And when the temptation is overwhelming, you put your money in and then are disappointed thereafter. But it's part of the entire financial business. If the market gets quite out of line, stock prices, for example, get quite out of line with intrinsic values, it gets high like this and it goes back and reverts to intrinsic value of the stocks. Discounted future cash flow is what we call it. It doesn't have anything to do with stock prices. It has to do with corporate intrinsic values. So, and I should have a, a nice chart in there to show that, that kind of mean reversion. It's just truth of the business and how we deceive ourselves because we all think we're smarter than everybody else. You also, or the, the second rule is time is your friend, impulse is your enemy. What, what do you really mean by time is your friend? Well, we have uh, the miracle of compound interest working for us. And when you invest over 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, for today's young people, an investment lifetime is probably 70 years. Their life expectancy today is if you're 20, it's probably 90. So you're going to be, and then you're going to be investing, you know, one, after you retire, of course, and presumably that's in your 60s or 70s for some people. <laughs> and, <laughs> not, uh, not you, but. Not me. Uh, but, um, that curve is just a sweeping curve, and it's the, it's the miracle of, of compounding uh, returns, and it pays off hugely. Albert Einstein called compound interest the greatest financial miracle of all time or something like that. So take advantage of that, uh, and the only thing that gets you out of it, focus on the long term. Time is your friend, but if you get distracted by the ups and downs, mostly by the downs, people respond much more nervously to downs than they do ebulliently to the ups, although that happens too. Uh, but impulse is going to get you in and out of the markets. Uh, but think about this. Uh, when you feel, when the market is low, it's low because people like you are really worried. Uh, and if that's a good time to buy stocks, essentially. There aren't any rules for this. And if you're ebullient and feel very wealthy and want to buy stocks, that's at the high. In other words, if you're discouraged and selling at the low and aggressive and buying at the high, your money isn't going to last very long. And I guess that's one of the problems that you have to try to resist the impulse because we are, we are human, but we're also animals and we are, we are basically um, bred to run from fear. So when we see the market goes low, we want to get out, but we have to resist that. Is that if, correct? Yes, correct. And if we just didn't pay any attention to these silly swings in the market, which are, I often use this quote from Shakespeare, like a tale told by an idiot, full of sound <laughs> and fury signifying nothing. That's what we're glued to our television sets to watch every day. Makes no sense. So that leads us to the third simple rule for investment success, um, buy right and hold tight. Buy right means diversify, diversify, diversify in an index fund, which is a great way to invest uh, for reasons I've talked about earlier, uh, you, at low cost and all that, but you're diversified, so the in, in, intricate ins and outs of the market, you know, steel stocks are doing better, or energy stocks are doing better, or healthcare is doing better, or technology is doing better. Uh, if you own the whole market, you get your share of all of that. So, but uh, that, that's the buy right, very diversified. And the hold tight is what we've talked a little bit about, and that is, you know, when you get these periods of adversity and fear uh, and greed, uh, don't do anything. Well, speaking of greed, another one of your 10 simple rules are to have realistic expectations. And then you talk about the bagel and the donuts and distinguish the two. Okay, uh, well, the bagel and the donut is a talk I gave years ago, and I contrasted, like the investment world, the bagel is nutritious, uh, good for you, substantive, uh, while the donut has a certain sweetness, and it kind of breaks up and crumbles when you eat it. And uh, so long-term investing, holding on, the uh, strategy I just described, is the bagel, and short-term speculation is the donut, just a way of visualizing. 
you know, which you want, which is the best for you in the long run. And sometimes people may think, I'd just soon have a couple of donuts, but they're not going to do you any good, <laughs> with all due respect for the donut makers of America. All right, and, and, and I like your analogies here. Your, your fifth simple rule is forget the needle by the haystack. Now, that, now, what, what do you really mean by that one? Well, that's the ultimate argument for indexing. Picking stocks or funds, finding that elusive needle that will give you what you think you want in the future uh, is very difficult. Finding, we all know the metaphor of finding a needle in the haystack, it means forget it, it's not worth trying. And I would argue the same thing here. Own the haystack means own the entire U.S. stock market or the entire world stock market. Everybody has different ideas about that. And uh, don't do anything once you get the haystack. No more, no, no more looking for needles. So it's a, it's a you know, uh, Don Quixote had it just right. All right, and another one of your simple rules is to minis, minimize the croupier's take. Okay, that's, a, that's a, a very good parallel to something I mentioned earlier. And that means get costs out of the equation. Uh, I mentioned to you the magic of compounding returns over the long term, the mathematical magic of it. The problem we have in our society is that that magic, on the record, is overwhelmed by the tyranny of compounding long-term costs. And I gave you that example of 7% gross return, uh, net return, 9% gross return, and it's cost you 70% of your capital over your lifetime. Be aware of that. The, the next rule is something that a lot of my clients have a, a, an enormous problem with, and we could probably talk for a long time about just this, but one of your rules is there is no escaping risk. And this is probably a particular problem for people who are older, retired, uh, no longer bringing money in through their work and their labor, have X dollars of, of a portfolio, maybe Social Security, maybe pension. They don't want to incur risk, but you're saying there is no escaping risk. Well, the basic argument there is that inflation, which you have no control over, eats away at the value of your dollars. You may think you're being safe if you buy a bank CD or an equivalent instrument and in, let's say over 10 years, but that, that the instrument's going to lose 30% of its value conservatively over the next 10 years. Uh, and uh, you know, they'll have a little bit of interest to offset that, but if the dollar is worth 30 30%, which is roughly 2.5% per year in inflation, uh, that's gone. You've taken a big risk by, in effect, speculating, for the want of a better word, that the dollar will remain unchanged, and it never has, and I don't think in our lifetimes it ever will. Maybe sometime. But, uh, so there's the big risk. So when you look at, say, stocks and bonds, uh, stocks at least have a fighting chance uh, to overcome the ravages of inflation. And the way I look at it, I've got some math behind this because with a dividend yield of stocks about 2% and potential earnings growth should be in the range of 5%, stocks should give you about 7% over the next 10 years. Gross, 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 before cost, before anything. So that's a fairly conservative number, but I think it's realistic. And bonds should probably give you about 25 So if you think about inflation, just 2.5% inflation, and the bond gives you 2.5%, uh, you're doing a break-even investment over the next 10 years. Um, and that's just, you need more than that if you're going to build a retirement fund. And if you have X dollars and you're getting 0%, and you even if you're living frugally, you're still reducing the purchasing power and the actual amount of money that you have. Yeah, and importantly, we live in the most, in a way, and I've said this before, in the most difficult time to invest that I've ever seen. And the reason for that is yes, stocks have more volatility risk. Uh, they go up and down, and bonds stay pretty steady from day to day. But you have to take into account not only the risk, but the return. And the return on stocks, I think, is, you know, I'm close to saying destined to, but I won't go that far. I'll say highly likely with a 7% expectation, which could be right or wrong, but it's certainly very likely to be to 2.5% almost certainty for bonds. And actually, I'm being generous to bonds because the government bond, the 10-year Treasury, is yielding 1.6% today is all. So you've got to take a little bit of risk in corporates, and I would frankly take a bigger risk in corporates. 
But so ask yourself this question, who, which is riskier for the next 10 years? That bond, which will give you a low return, but probably not very much, or the stocks, which are highly likely to give you a high return, uh, but with volatility along the way. And for that reason, I like the idea of a balanced portfolio, some stocks and some bonds, although you have to think about it a little bit differently today with interest rates at these floor, uh, probably money market funds are basically not even worth buying. The average yield of a money market fund is, I think, two-tenths of one percent. People should buy very short-term bond funds, my opinion, high-quality short-term bond funds instead. So there are ways to do it, but you have to look at just not volatility risk, but the entire picture of investment risk to dividend income, risk to your income, if you're giving up a 2.5%, 2% stock yield and getting only 1% from a CD or whatever it might be. All right, the the next one, by the way, if, the more you talk, the more I want to go off on a million tangents, um, but I'd, I'd like to go to the, I'd like to finish the, the 10 because I think they're such gems. You talk about beware of fighting the last war. What do you mean by that, the last war? Well, when we tend to look back, we tend to look at the kind of returns, the kind of economic environment we've had. And right now, I mean, I actually wrote quite a bit of this in depth back in the, oh, say mid-60s. And everybody was paralyzed with fear about inflation. We had inflation running at 5 or 6 or 7 percent. They say, how can I avoid inflation and do this or that or the other thing? And at that point, the inflation stopped. And we had, I don't know the exact number, but probably after that high inflation, uh, we probably had an inflation rate of 2 to 3 percent is all, maybe 4. So if you're fighting against previous inflation, you're making a tacit assumption that will continue in the future. It doesn't, or usually doesn't, or often doesn't, but we, don't, we never know when that change is coming. It's kind of complicated. Today, uh, one of the best examples is returns on stocks. The historical return of stocks is 9%. So people say, I want that 9%, so I'll go into stocks. That was the last war. Today, stocks are going to give a future return about 2% less, or maybe more than that, a bigger shortfall. Why is that? It's so obvious, and that is that 9% over 100 years is 4.5% dividend yield on stocks and 4.5% earnings growth, nine total return from investment. And today, the yield on stocks is 2.1%. So forget that extra 2.5%. Strike it. And when you go through the math, you'll see that the future return is going to be in a 6.5% or 7% compared to history. Don't listen to history. It's interesting, and it may rhyme, as Mark Twain said, but it doesn't repeat itself. <laughs> well, speaking of not listening to history and the short-term versus the long-term, another one of your simple rules is the hedgehog beats the fox. Well... Uh, I use that to portray the difference between passive index investing and active managed, actively managed fund investing. The hedgehog, the, the saying from Archilochus, Greek philosopher who just left a few fragments of his work, was the fox knows many things, but the hedgehog knows one great thing. And what the hedgehog knows is that all of this fooling around out there does you no good at all own the market. It's another way of saying that. And the fox, oh my, are they smart. They're smarter than all the hedgehogs put together. Go down to Wall Street and talk at all that immensely wealthy brain power that, of course, builds nothing because they're competing with other brain power. I'm not saying brain power is wasted. I'm saying the average brainiac is average compared to the other brainiacs. So they can't win. We know that. So, you know, all the secrets. I've got a tip for you. Buy this, sell that. Now, that's the fox thing, the foxy way to beat the market. Doesn't work. And the, and the less sexy index funds outperforming the more active yeah, the, brainiac funds. The, the index fund, in fact, is an active extreme boredom. And uh, if, you, if you don't peak, another one of my rules that I'm not sure I mentioned in the book, if you don't look, that's in your interest not to look. Why, why open that 401k statement? or your IRA statement every quarter and say either I'm rich 
or I'm ruined. Just throw it in the wastebasket. <laughs> yeah, J Jeremy Sigel says the same thing, that the more often you look, the, the worse it is. Well the, well, the other thing that that brings us to is your, um, your, the last simple, simple rule is stay the course. Well, we've kind of talked a little bit about that behind the scenes here, and that is once you've set an intelligent asset allocation, taken into account your risk preferences, taken into account your whole financial program, a lot of people, for example, ignore the value of Social Security as a capitalized value for a typical person at the time of their retirement of 400000 or $500,000. That's your asset. It produces an income stream. You don't have the asset, but you have the income stream with a cost of living hedge. Don't leave Social Security out of your equation when you look at all that. But just get it all right and then don't touch it, except I would argue lean toward uh, raising the bond position as you age. And that's not so easy to do today with bond yields so low, but I, I probably wouldn't lean quite as far. And when you take into account Social Security, you know, you may be leaning too far already uh, to the fixed income side. For example, if your Social Security is worth 400000 and you have 400000 all in stocks, that's a 50-50 equity fixed ratio with one of the great fixed, ratio, fixed investments of all time as a cost of living clause in it. And the government nicely sends you, as long as they can afford to, uh, a nice check every year that just raised this year's payments. My wife said, shouldn't we send some of this back? <laughs> To which I, of course, said we paid for it. <laughs> but uh, take into account everything. And, and then don't you let yourself get deterred by market changes, by gossip, uh, by uh, CNBC, <laughs> whatever it might be. One of your simple rules is you can't escape risk. So what is a risk-averse investor supposed to do if they can't escape risk, but at the same time, it goes against what they want to do. They just want to be safe. They want to make sure their money lasts for the rest of their life. And they want, they have to earn to, to do that in this most difficult of yield environments in maybe half a century uh, with low yields on bonds. And they want to maintain some kind of income to keep themselves going in retirement. And uh, so what's to be done? Uh, first of all, the best general rule, unfortunately, is don't try and outsmart the market. Bonds are yielding, offering you 2.5% say, and stocks are offering you perhaps 7. Don't reach for an 8%, 10%, 20%, or a home run in the stock market, and don't take the quality of your bond portfolio way down. Uh, you, know, you can get higher yields in bonds, but I would avoid junk bonds because the credit risk is high. I would avoid, to some extent, moving bond money into high-dividend-paying stocks not so much because I'm worried about the stocks, because they tend to be, stock market has own volatility, very different from the bond market, and investors should be very sure they can handle that kind of volatility. So it's difficult to do that. Uh, the next thing is, and, and I should, should add right here, that the reason bond yielders, a large part of the reason that bond yields are so low is U.S. government bonds. Uh, they are the lowest they have been I don't know, in memory, certainly in my long, long memory, and uh, at 1.6% for the 10-year Treasury, there you could almost say unacceptable. Yet, the bond market index fund is 70% in Treasuries. So for a holder of the entire bond market or the equivalent index fund, I think they are required almost by common sense to move some portion of that total bond market index fund into a corporate bond market index fund. Not all of it, but 70% in U.S. government securities seems like maybe it ought to be more like 30. So you can balance that out with investment-grade bonds. I'm not talking junk here. And that should be an important consideration of people. So that's you know, what happens. Every, everything has pros and cons to it. We know that. Uh, you, know, you, you may have to get your expenses a little bit under control on the home front. That's very painful. You may have to spend a little capital don't limit yourself to income, but spend a little bit from capital. But that can't go on forever. You can't, can't take it, but maybe for a, a year or two till yields improve or whatever might happen. And that's difficult. Uh, you know, you could go into very speculative things, I would argue. Real estate investment trusts, 
pay a high apparent yield, but it's all coming out of everything they earn and their accounting is a little funny. Uh, you could also think about annuities. And there's nothing in the abstract wrong with annuities except that so many of them are so highly priced they're not worth buying. And you don't have to worry about the cost of the annuity, which are extremely high, even relative to the standards of Wall Street. Uh, but you also have to worry, is the insurance company going to be financially sound if it's trying to earn more money than the market delivers and it can't pay it? They're going to go out of business. And we had a big worry about that with a few annuitants. And I don't think any of the big ones did uh, back in 2008, 2009. So be very careful of the cost of the annuity and be very careful of the quality of the company that's issuing it. And they generally fight against each other a good bit. Higher quality companies are apt to feel the need to, or to pay lower yields because they're higher quality. So there aren't easy answers. Uh, but still, you have to go out and invest and make some sacrifice one place or another uh, along the way uh, to come out with a reasonable return. But to re reiterate my basic position, don't go beyond the level of the markets in terms of potential future yields. Don't speculate to get higher yields. One bad speculation will ruin your entire reti retirement. And that also seems to me that that would have an impact on the safe withdrawal rate. So Bill Bengen, all those years ago, was talking about 4% and then as you age, it could be higher and higher. Are you saying now that we can't quite expect as much from the market, that maybe we have to re-look re at some of those safe withdrawal rates that were in all the literature, say, 10, 15 years ago? Well, first I use the, the word safe at my peril. But I would say most people could afford to do a 4% withdrawal rate. Uh, you know, if, if the combined market return of stocks and bonds is, say, 4.5%, you ultimately aren't taking anything out of principle. You're going to lose something to inflation. But you better observe it. And if markets go the wrong way, you're going to have to modify it. But I think under most circumstances, 4%, which means maybe taking a percentage point out of your capital, percentage point and a quarter out of your capital each year, uh, your capital will last for a long, long, long time. So I'd have one recommendation for somebody who was 60. Probably 4% is not the right number. And some quite others, uh, if, you're, if you're 90, I'd say 4% was a piece of cake. Don't cheat by living too long. Okay, that's, that's, a, that's a good, um, well, actually, I think people might prefer going the other way. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, I did ha ask some of our, our listeners uh, to give them a chance to ask a few questions. And Sean Burke asked, if you think Congress will actually take action, um, hold brokers accountable, have full disclosures, and hold financial professionals to a fiduciary standard. Is that, is that in our future or is that in our dreams? Well, I don't have a lot of confidence that Congress will act on anything. Uh, and whether that's good or bad, there's certainly some good elements to it. But I don't think they'll have a hard time acting on anything. But they also have a great, even harder time acting when there's not some kind of a crisis going on. And while we have a crisis in long-term investing in a sense, it's not going to come home to roost for a decade, more than that. And so Congress is apt to say, wait a minute, we've got so many more important things to do. We've got gun control. We've got climate change. We've got reforming the financial system outside of this. We've got the fiscal cliff. And it's hard for me to see fiduciary duty climbing to the top of that heap. So we have to do uh, what I call the Adam Smith solution to the problem. As if each investor, each person in your viewing audience or listening audience, uh, would just act in his own best interest, own an index fund, do no trading, have an intelligent asset allocation, keep costs low, uh, he's going to change the financial system because that's not the way particularly most mutual fund companies are structured. They're marketing companies. Uh, they have very little sense of fiduciary duty in my experience. And, uh, but if, if someone with a, that holds themselves to a fiduciary standard is going to start to collect all the money. And uh, we see that happening today. Everybody knows that almost all, over 100% of the money coming into this industry is in, in particularly equity funds, is going in index funds and low-cost funds. 
last five years, people have put $600 billion in index funds, in equity funds, and taken $400 billion out of actively managed funds. That's a trillion dollar swing just by the way people are acting. So eventually the industry is going to have to adjust. And I know we are wrapping up. Is there any, let's say, words of wisdom, although you just said so for the index funds, but anything that if we want to, for our listeners or readers or, or audience to take away, can you give them, let's say, the short version of Bogle investing, or is the 10 simple rules the best, the best way to do it? We'll use those rules, but they come down to some very simple things. Keep costs down. As allocate your assets uh, in, with respect to the amount of risk you're willing to assume with some focus on your age. Uh, not, not overbearingly, but some. Uh, you know, if you have an advisor, get a little help for some of the complexities of this system. You know, a financial advisor is a very valuable piece of work uh, for the things that we don't much think about, helping you with that asset allocation idea, telling you the difference between a Roth IRA and a regular IRA, telling you in your financial position whether you might own municipal bonds as compared to corporate bonds. Uh, the system is loaded with nuances. Estate planning is it, it, it's a whole other complexity. So with this complex world, I think most people need some kind of help. Well, I, I just want to thank you. You have been an inspiration uh, for generations. Uh, the Gutenberg Press, The Wheel, uh, Van Vanguard S&P 500, thank you so much for agreeing to come on our show and, and to uh, provide this wonderful information. Well, it's so, great to be with you. Thank you so much. And I just have to add one word. You left out part of Paul Samuelson's quote when he got the Gutenbergs printing on the wheel. He also compared the invention of the index fund to the creation of wine and cheese. Ha, ha, ha.